About a little over 40 years ago, I launched out on a trip from Pennsylvania to Ocean City, Maryland, relying on a quite fuzzy map that I had in my mind. And my plan was to drive down through Delaware, drive a while, hang a left, you know, go east, and then just follow the coast down until I got to Ocean City, Maryland. Um, my plan did work, sort of. Um, I did get to Ocean City, uh, Maryland, not Ocean City, New Jersey, where I had my hotel reservations. Um, see, I was missing something in that map in my mind, um, a quite large and, and not particularly insignificant body of water called the Delaware Bay. And uh, yeah, so I ended up having to drive back up almost to Philadelphia where I could take a bridge and cross over the Delaware River and then go back down. So I could have saved myself a lot of time and, and gas money and embarrassment if I would have just looked at a map first <laughs> instead of relying on my own understanding, or in this case, actually, maybe better said, my own misunderstanding <laughs> of the geography. Um, I can't tell you how many times that I've wished in my life that I could have a do-over. And, and not just in trivial matters like, you know, this, but in, you know, more seriously foolish and, and sinful areas. And, um, you know, I just need to ask, I mean, am I alone in this? Am I, am I the only one that's wished he could have a do-over? Of course not, right? I mean, it, it comes with being human. The good news is that the Bible offers us a better way, a way that we can avoid the, the sin and stupidity and the often uh, painful and costly consequences that come with them. So let's take a look at this, this better way that's really summed up in a in a short uh, but quite profound proverb, or proverbs in this case, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. What it says is this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge or submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Completely... Trust in God to direct your life, and he will bring it to good end. That's essentially what this passage is saying. So let's zoom in on the first part, what it means to trust God completely, as the first three lines of this passage teach us. So first we're told, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, trusting God involves trusting what he's revealed about himself, what he's done, what he promises to do. And these have to include things like confidence in God's perfect love and goodness, his infinite knowledge and wisdom, and his absolute power and sovereign control over this universe that he's created. Because if we don't have complete confidence in those things, we're certainly not going to deem him someone who's trustworthy to, to direct or lead our lives, right? If it makes sense. So in other words, if, if I'm confident in these things and that as a follower of Jesus, that, that God knows what is in my best interest, my greatest good, and he knows how to bring that about, he desires to do that, and he's able to do that, that's someone I can trust. 
if you take away any one of those things, you got someone that you don't want to follow, right? In other words, if God is all-knowing and, and even all-good and loving, but impotent to do what he desires, that doesn't get you too far. If, if God is all-powerful and sovereign in control of this world and all-knowing and wise, and yet he's not good, where does that leave you? Someone that can do you a lot of harm <laughs> real easily, right? Um, and if God is all loving and good and, and sovereign and powerful, but not all wise and knowing, then he makes mistakes, right? He just doesn't, he doesn't get it. I mean, if you'd only seen that coming or knew that was going to happen, maybe he'd have done something different. You see where I'm going with this? So it involves certainly confidence or trust in certain characteristics about God and his nature and who he is. Um, and certainly it has to involve confidence in what he has revealed, as I said, about himself, not just including these things, but, but really everything that he's revealed about who he is, how he operates, what he's going to do. And doing this and trusting God with all of our heart means doing it fully, not just partially, not just sometimes, and, and not just in certain areas of our lives. Back in the uh, 90s, um, our family, while well, I was pastoring at a small church in Ohio at the time, and we were fairly close to Niagara Falls. And my wife and kids, we used to try to we'd get up there at least once a year or something like that, because it's spectacular, right? I mean, if, you're, if you've never been there, the falls are, are absolutely incredible. And uh, one particular time when we were up there, we had a little bit extra time on our hands, so we visited uh, the Daredevil Museum. And it was pretty eye-opening, because I didn't really realize, I guess you'd heard about it somewhat, but I didn't really realize the amount of daredevils that used to, back in, you know, like the 1800s, um, show up. And some of them were not real bright. I mean, you know, the idea of being a daredevil meant that you were essentially going over the falls in, in like a glorified whiskey barrel or something. And most of those, uh, if they found them, they usually were in pieces. Um, but there was one guy who really caught my attention. His name was uh, Jean-Francois Gravelet. His stage name was The Great Blonde, and you may have heard of him. But in any case, um, in June, on June 30th, 1859, Blondin made history by crossing across the Niagara River Gorge on a tightrope. And the guy was quite, a, quite talented. He was very good, and he was quite a showman. So if you go there, you can see some of the relics that he used. He would push a wheelbarrow across. He went across on a bicycle, went across with his hands and feet manacled, blindfolded, of all things. Um, you know, he, he uh, carried out a, 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 a potberry belly stove, made a fire, cooked an omelet. Um, <laughs> the, the guy was amazing, right? And uh, tradition has it that he would, uh, you know, have, have a good time with the crowd, right? Because, you know, they would see him go across, and he would say, uh, you know, do you think I can do it again? Do you think I can make it back across? And they would be like, yeah, yeah, of course you can do it. And so he asked somebody for, you know, he asked for a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow. 
And, and, and how many people do you think jumped on that one, right? They're like, yeah, no, man, what are, you, what are you thinking? What have you been smoking? How could you even ask me something like that, right? And uh, admittedly, I would have been the same way. I'd have been the same thing. I'd have said, you know, oh, yeah, of course you can do it. Why? You've done it many times. Me? Oh, yeah, that ain't. Um, but shortly after that, he announced that in August 19th of that same year, 1859, his manager, Harry Colcord, was going to cross over the uh, Niagara River Gorge on his back. And he did. So they recounted it as a, a harrowing trip because I don't know how much you know about tight ropes in those days. These aren't like the steel cables that they use with cranes and, and they're as tight as, and strong as could be. It, it was a rope, right? And so they, they guy them the best they can so they don't swing that much. But in the center, you know, you, you don't have guy wires or cables or ropes out that far. Not to mention the ropes sag. And then with the weight of two people, it stretches and sags quite a bit. And so he said, you know, at the, at, the, at the center, it was swaying so much, he was running to try to get to the other end where it was a little more secure. And as he was going uphill, he said he had to stop numerous times and Colcord had to slide down off his back, put his a foot on the rope to take some of the weight off to give him a chance to catch his breath. Eventually they made it. Uh, both of them alive, right? <laughs> so um, whether or not Colcord was, uh, you know, intelligent in, in what he did, getting on his back, I think it reveals something pretty important. And that's that he trusted Blondin. Didn't just believe a few things about him, um, but he had some pretty significant confidence in this man, enough that he would entrusted him with his life, right? And I think that's a pretty significant and important analogy when we talk about trust in God or in this new covenant area specifically, trust in Jesus Christ as the second person of our triune God, right? Sometimes when we talk about trusting in Christ, whether it be saving faith or, or, or otherwise, we tend to be very reductionistic, you know? And I think sometimes we can try to look at this as sort of like a formula. Like, like what's the least I can possibly believe about... So we might not consciously say it, but what's the least I can possibly believe or, 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 or what's the minimal amount that I can trust Jesus and still feel pretty comfortable that I'm going to heaven, right? And, 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 and sleep at night. And I just think that totally misses the point. Because... Even though sometimes scripture will put a focus on certain aspects about faith in Jesus, you know, for instance, Paul writing to the church at Corinth where you have these Greeks that just thought the whole notion of resurrection was ridiculous. He would put a focus there on, you know, trusting in in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, you know, we can look through scripture and find where they they talk about different things. But collectively, as you look at it, uh, trusting in Christ, trusting in God is something that's very robust. And the demonstration that a person is trusting in God, is trusting in Jesus Christ, is, is simply put that they, 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 they follow him, they, that we, we submit to him, that we totally rearrange and reorient our lives and, and our allegiance for him because we do believe him. We, we do believe what he says. 
And we, we do trust him to, to lead us and guide us through life because we think, hey, he, is, he, he knows best, right? Um, you know, it's very similar. Now, when I think about our relationship with our heavenly father, it's, it's, not all, it's, not, it's not all that dissimilar between a relationship with our earthly parents, right? It's Father's Day, like an earthly father, um, admittedly, we don't, we're not all good and, and loving and wise and knowing and, and powerful like, like the Lord. But even to the extent where we do, uh, you know, know what's best for our children and, and we do things out of motives of, of love and wanting what's best for them, we know it as, as children. And not just us who were parents having our children, but when we were children, we did the same thing, right? We tend to rebel and reject because we, we don't trust them. We, we think we, we know best. We, we lean on our own understanding and what makes sense. And the danger is we can do that same thing with God. Which leads us to the second line in this uh, passage. The text warns us not to lean on our own understanding. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six bluntly says, He who trusts in himself is a fool. We're relying on our own understanding, on, on ourselves, when we make decisions based on our own feelings and desires and beliefs and notions when they're not in line with Scripture. Our understanding of what's right and wrong, bad and good or best in any given situation, that is our, our belief system, our, our worldview, if you will, is something that we develop over the course of our lives based on things, what we, we hear, we read, we pick it up, maybe from uh, Sunday morning, right, from a sermon, hopefully somewhat from the Bible, maybe a Sunday school, but we pick it up from our coworkers, our friends, our classmates, pick it up from the TV and the radio and the books we read. We pick it up from the news shows. We pick it up the younger generation, especially on the internet and any different possible areas. We maybe get it from, you know, our celebrities, uh, sports fans, or whoever else, you know, movie stars and things they say. And I, there's a problem here. So think about it this way. If I go to a buffet and all that food's there and I have a plate, I'm free to get whatever I want, right? I could choose to get, you know, produce, fresh fruits and vegetables, lean meats, healthy things. Or I could just stock up on French fries and and desserts, I could eat, you know, all the cheesecake the place has and clean out their ice cream. It, it, healthy or not, I mean, it's my decision, right? And I'm probably not going to die on the spot at least. <laughs> but think about that in r- relation to our theology, our worldview, our belief system. Is that really a good way to come at what's right? Just, I, I like this. I like the sound of that. Yeah, I'll take that. Got a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And pretty soon we got our plate, and it's, you know, a little bit of Oprah, some CNN, maybe a little Fox News, 
sprinkle a Bible in there for, might as well. Um, you see where I'm going with this? If we're, go- if we're going to lean not on our understanding, if we're going to lean on God's understanding, then we have to know God. We have to know what he's written. We have to know what he's said, which means, essentially, we have to know Scripture very well. And, and I just got to be honest. I mean, as important as it is, you know, being in a situation like this, you don't have, there's no way that just on a Sunday morning, you're going to learn systematically enough about God and, and Scripture to be able to do this. It's going to involve taking time and, and seriously spending time in Scripture and studying it and thinking about it. And that being the standard the grid, if you will, through which I run all things. Then I have a reliable way of coming knowledge and truth. You know, there's going to be, does, is all the truth in the world contained in Scripture? Of course not. I haven't read anything here about calculus. Does it mean that, you know, it's not true or, or, or you know, mathematics or certain things in science? And yet, the reality is that everything that is in here is true. And the issue is, it's when I start hearing other things, other notions, which are, are many, right? Which is one of the reasons why it's not just that we're hearing all of these things that are so contrary to Scripture, like in an increasing amount, you know, it seems like every day it gets worse. But why also, you know, our, our, our world is so much turning against Scripture and Christianity and, and wanting to deny it because it's obvious, right? They see it as something that's diametrically opposed to their beliefs and views and their ways of wanting to do things. Why do you think, you know, when you had the Russian Revolution, you know, why did they round up all the Christians and kill them or send them to gulags? Because they were a threat, right? Didn't go with with what they believed, right? So trusting God and his commands and his direction, wisdom in the Bible versus natural human understanding implies, again, that we know God, that we know his word. The point is that human understanding and beliefs and and notions and convictions that are not based on and not in line with scripture are just terribly unreliable. And they're going to lead us down a very bad path, though many won't realize this, sadly, until it's too late. In the very sobering words of Proverbs 14, 12, we're told, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. This proverb reminds us of the most tragic way we can rely on our understanding. And that's when we either deny God or trust in our own goodness or some other way to God, rather than trusting in his grace and trusting in Christ and Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection to become right with God. You know, I got to tell you that um, <laughs> the idea that Jesus is the only way to God, uh, which, is, which is exclusive, is getting to be less popular every day. I mean, I talk with sailors day in and day out, and it's not uncommon to hear someone describe themselves as spiritual, but spiritual means 
yeah, um, I think there's a higher power out there. Um, yeah, hasn't really told us much about him. My notions of who he is and or she and and how he operates, uh, you know, is based on what I would do, right? You know, we create, they, we create God in our own image, right? And so God doesn't send anybody to hell, um, doesn't really care what you do. He's not all uptight. So just kind of do what you want. Try to be basically a good person or not, and uh, everything will be okay. Yeah, you might have some karma issues to deal with. You know, things might come back at you a little bit, so you probably should not be too horrible. And there's thousands and, and thousands and thousands upon thousands of other ways that we can potentially lean on our understanding rather than completely trusting God and his word. I'm just going to give a couple examples this morning. So one that comes to mind, start, it's in Matthew chapter 20. It starts off with uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, right? James and John. And she approaches Jesus, and she has you know, her sons with her. And she asks Jesus, hey, you know, when you come into your kingdom, when you establish the messianic kingdom and you're ruling for eternity, can one of my sons sit on your right and the other on your left, which are positions of power and authority and honor, right? The greatest power, authority, and honor, right? Apart from uh, Christ himself. And um, so the other, you know, 10 uh, disciples of, of the 12 heard about that. And as you can imagine, they were pretty supportive, right? They were probably advocating for it. Like, hey, yeah, these guys are really <laughs> top-notch. We would, we would love that. No, of course not, right? They were indignant because they're like, wait a minute. What are these knuckleheads? What about us, man? We, we, I want to be there, right? And so as Jesus typically does, he used that as an example, a time to, uh, to do some teaching. And he told them this. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. But you, if you want to be great, you have to serve one another. If you want to be first, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the slave of all. I think this is a classic example of turning human wisdom on its head. Because today, almost everyone, probably most people that fill pews and, and seats in churches think about greatness as involving power and authority and maybe wealth. Like, who's the greatest person? Well, maybe, you know, I don't know, the President of the United States or, or Elon Musk or, I don't know, you, you pick something. But what did Jesus teach us? It's the person who is the greatest servant. Probably somebody that you don't even know. Could be some janitor who, <laughs> some, some mother somewhere who's just serving faithfully, serving Jesus by serving others. Another natural tendency, even for many Christians, 
is to consider money and possessions their own to use as they please. I mean, there's a sense that it is. Um, but if you think about what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse and a few other places, the, the truth is, is clear is that if we're, we're followers of Jesus, then we've been entrusted as stewards, right? As managers of what belongs to him, right? Because really, none of this is ours, right? I may have the title for my house, which, which I don't. The bank will have it probably long after I'm dead. But in any case, um, the reality is that the day is going to come where we're going to leave this planet, and all that stuff's going to stay. It's not ours. But the reality is that we're accountable for how we use it. Are, are we using it for the glory of Jesus Christ, to further his kingdom? Are we using it to support the ministry of the local church, to support missions, to help those who are in need? Or, you know, do I, do I view it as my own, to totally do as I please? Maybe I'll, you know, give off a little chunk here and there. See, it's very different. If we look at Scripture very different than what is commonly human understanding in the area of of money and possessions. Another prevailing tendency is to be bitter, angry, vengeful against people who hurt us and to feel, to to be able to rationalize that and to be able to feel like, yeah, it's pretty normal, that's okay. God cares, he'll understand. And yet, Jesus very clearly calls us to love our enemies and to forgive. And we're taught in in Romans 12 to repay evil with good. Very different than natural human understanding, isn't it? So we're to trust the Lord completely and not rely on our understanding. Then additionally, we read that in all of our ways we're to acknowledge him, or as the newer version of NIV puts it, to submit to him. And the thought here is that the result of knowing God and experiencing his saving grace in our lives, we are to acknowledge and hence to submit, which is why they changed it, because essentially that's what they're getting at, right? Acknowledging God doesn't mean just, oh, yeah, acknowledge he exists. <laughs> That's not the context here. The context is that we, we, we submit to him, to his lordship, to his guidance, his direction in all areas of life. We're to seek and follow God's truth in, in every aspect of life, not, not just even with just crucial decisions, but with our everyday choices, with our families, and our education, our careers, our finances, our marriages, our friendships, everything. Completely trust God to direct your lives, and he'll bring them to a good path. So far, we've touched on what the passage has instructed us to do, and that's to trust God completely. Now, we're going to take a look as we close what the Lord will do for us if we do this, that he'll bring our lives to a good end. The text says that he'll make our paths straight. Right, This is poetic imagery. 
And it doesn't mean that we're going to never face trials or hardships or pain or suffering, but it does mean that God will lead us with perfect love and wisdom as a loving father and a good shepherd to a glorious eternity and presence with him. And it means that we won't inflict unneeded pain and hardship and guilt upon ourselves or, or others for that matter that could have avoided, been avoided by trusting in the one who made us and who gave his life for us at Calvary. So completely trust God to direct your life and he'll bring it to a good end. Sometimes I still fail to use maps, even Google Maps, and consequently I still make some wrong turns. Thankfully I don't think it's been quite that far off course since then. But uh, yeah, I do that. Uh, and worse yet, I still sometimes make some foolish and sinful choices. But I will say this, I can't ever remember choosing to do something where I, I trusted God and I followed him and I later on regretted it or wished I didn't. That, that's never happened. But the times that I didn't do that, I've definitely regretted it. I wished I could have a do-over. So I hope you'll join me in renewing, as I renew my commitment to completely trust God in all areas. Because as the Bible reminds us very clearly right here, if we do that, it'll bring our lives to a good end. Let's pray. Lord, um, we just come before you. Uh, we readily acknowledge and proclaim that you are worthy of our trust. And we confess that in spite of that, at times we, we don't do it. At least not fully and not consistently and not in every situation. And yet I pray that you would use this very simple but profound proverb along with the rest of your scripture um, to bring us to that point where we will. Give us a hunger to know you, a desire to have uh, the wisdom and knowledge that can be gained from the one who is infinite in knowledge and wisdom and perfect in these, that we would search scripture And be people who meditate on it, who, who, th who seek to understand what it means and, and how it applies in the various situations of our lives. And then that we would adjust our life accordingly. So in the end, help us to, to both trust you more and also to know and, and love you more also as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. 
You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.